Do you ever talk to yourself? Be honest. Be honest. Uh, I think I do sometimes. If not verbally, I'll do it internally. Um, right. My, my my middle child is always talking to himself. Um, is always when he's playing with stuff, he's just kind of talking and, and mumbling and stuff. And I think it's so funny. For, you know, for a little kid, it cracks me up. But I I've done the same thing. Sometimes again, sometimes maybe verbally a little bit, but definitely internally. Right. We all have this internal dialogue that's happening that is shaping what, how we feel, what we believe, and how we act as a result. We're all always talking to ourselves. Now, this psalm, I think, shows us how we should talk to ourselves. There's actually a way that we should, with the thoughts we have, that we should not simply be passive, but we should be active in how we are speaking to ourselves and how we're trying to shape our actions and our thoughts according to God's word. So this is a, this is a great psalm. Uh, well, it's two psalms we're going to look at today, but they really are, it's kind of one, one unified theme. They're probably originally one psalm. Now, in these psalms, there's this powerful contrast between who the psalmist knows God is and how the psalmist currently feels because of his circumstances. And I'm sure if you're a, a follower of Jesus and you seek to follow after him, you know just how prevalent that experience is of having feelings of maybe anxiety or worry, but you know that God's in control, right? Or feeling like God is far away and doesn't care about you, but you know the love of Jesus on the cross. You know that God welcomes you. So often our feelings don't match with the reality of who God is. So how do we deal with that? Well, we're, we're entering into book two of the book of Psalms. We just finished up book one um, last week, and we've seen that there are five books total in the book of Psalms. These are, these are major sections of the book of Psalms. So the first book was composed entirely of Psalms that were of David, or, or at least the, the, there's a few that didn't have any attribution. But we don't know who they were written by, but the ones that have a title at the beginning are from King David. And now we're going to see this clear turn in the second book. So one of the things we see here is, well, the, the, the header of this Psalm the subscript or superscript there to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. So this is the first time we have a psalm that's attributed to someone other than David. So that's very significant. And another thing we'll see throughout this book is that there's a, in terms of the name of God or how God is referred to, he's much more often referred to as God, Elohim, than he is Lord, Yahweh. So that's an interesting thing as well. And so we'll see we'll see more of that in the coming psalms. Now, Psalm <clears throat> Psalms 42 and 43 are probably one psalm, and there's a few reasons why we think that, or they should have they should be one psalm. One thing that's pretty obvious when you read them is that Psalm 43 completes the flow of thought of Psalm 42. So Psalm 42, if you ended where it ended, it, it's kind of unresolved, and then Psalm 43 brings it all the way around and it completes it. So that's one reason people think that this is one psalm originally. There's also this repeated refrain in the psalm. Um, you see it in 42.5, 42.11, and 43.5, right? Why are you cast down, O my soul? So that stanza or that, that verse is repeated again and again and again. And those probably unite these three separate stanzas. They kind of give us uh, markers of how the, the flow of the passage and there are other things that indicate they're probably one psalm. There's no, there's no header for um, Psalm 43, so that's that's indication that maybe that they're connected. That some manuscripts also put them together. So there's a historical reason for this as well, to think that these were originally one psalm. Uh, 
So we're going to jump through this. So first, first we're going to see in verses 1 to 5 the longing for God. And then in verses 6 to 11, we'll see this searching for God. And then Psalm 43, verses 1 to 5, we'll see the psalmist going to God. So let's walk through this here. First, we see the longing for God. Verse uh, 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my so pants my soul for you, O God. So an incredibly famous passage. This is one of the most famous passages in all of the Psalms. And of course, there's songs about this as well. But this is just such vivid imagery that we, we can see this image. We can visualize this. We can feel this, right? We, can, we know this experience. Even if we live in a place where there's abundant water, um, we can understand those times where we've been very thirsty. Life, life in Israel had many arid regions. There were different parts of Israel that were very dry. And so when you're in these desert wastes, to find water was to find life was to be able to hold on to life. And for them, right, no water means no life. That's obvious, of course, right? But for us, we don't always feel that because we can always access uh, drinking water whenever we want to. But here he's, he's, he's thirsting for God. So the image is of an animal panting, uh, a deer panting. Now, you may, you may think of your dog or something, right? Seeing a dog panting and wanting water expressing its thirst in a vivid visual way. And here that's the idea. And he's saying he needs God. He desires and longs for God. And without God, he will perish. Look at verse two. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, what does it mean to thirst for God? We've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but it means that God is the source of life. It means that there's no joy, no hope, no life apart from him. And when we're distant from God, our souls are parched. We're desiring something and we don't even always know where to go for that, where to find satisfaction. So many people don't even realize that they have this kind of thirst. They, they walk through life thirsting, hungering for something, for something to fill their souls and they try to satisfy that in with all different kinds of things, things that only give momentary relief or momentary pleasure, and then it fades away. No, the psalmist here understands that only God can satisfy his deepest desires. Nothing else is going to be able to do that. And so he looks to God. He thirsts for God, and he calls God the living God. The living God. Now, that, that could be a reference to you know how God is alive versus idols who are dead, but it probably, again, just means that God is the source of life, that he is alive. He really is life itself. He's the source of all life. Notice also in, in verse 8, kind of to skip ahead, but he says, this is a prayer to the God of my life. So the idea there is that God is in control of his life. He gives to him life and breath and everything. So he says, I, I want to go to the living God. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? That, that appear before God is literally, when will I come and see the face of God? He wants to behold God. He wants to be in relationship with God because he feels like he's been cut off from God or he's separated from God. And so he longs to be in his presence. Verse three, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? So if his tears have been his food, that's the idea here, 
that means he's spending time crying and not eating. That's kind of the idea, right? So that's all he's, he's eaten, so to speak, is his tears. So he's, he's in mourning. He's, in, he's struggling. He's in a difficult place because it seems like he's not able to go and to worship God in his temple. We'll see he's, he's located in a different region at this point. He's in exile, so to speak, and he wants to, to go and be with God. And yet his enemies are mocking him, right? Saying, where is your God? In other words, God doesn't care about you. He's not here. He doesn't provide for you. Look at the condition that you're in. Verse four, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Now, a quick note that I forgot to mention at the beginning, which is uh, I didn't mention who these sons of Korah were. Well, who's Korah? Well, we see in, in the lives of David and Solomon in, in Kings and in Chronicles, we see that there, there's someone appointed to be the leader of the, the music whose name is Korah. So Korah is appointed, and the sons of Korah would be his descendants who continued in this uh, path of leading people into worship and writing songs and all, the, all these beautiful praises to God. And so he's remembering what he used to do. He used to have this role where he would lead people into God's presence and how much he loved that. Now, this is a key word. The word remember is a key word. What you remember matters so much. In, in your Bible, I would underline remember in verse 4, and I, I would underline it in verse 6 as well. We see that I remember you. So the remembering here is very important. So when things are bad, are you able to remember the good things that God has done? Are you able to remember the good things God has given to you? When God feels distant, do you focus on his character that is unchanging throughout, throughout history and in your life as well? Do you look back on the good times and say, God's going to give me that again? When you're disoriented, <clears throat> excuse me, when you're disoriented, do you remember? Do you actively fix your thoughts on these truths? He begins to, to meditate here on a time when he would be in the temple and the joy of God's people gathering together for worship. Uh, have you ever experienced that? I, I hope if you go to our church in Santa Cruz that, that you, you have experienced that. Um, so much of the modern church is, is kind of aimed at a, a sort of a shallowness in corporate worship and uh, simply an individual experience. And it doesn't have the, the gravity that we should have when we come before God and the seriousness. And not that it's somber, but that it we're worshiping, we're in the presence of God together. Um, or maybe you're at a church where people don't sing loudly and you haven't had the experience of hearing these voices lifted up, singing beautiful, meaningful words of praise. You know, for our church, we're not, we're not a you know, high church. We're not, um, you know, one of all these ornate buildings or this kind of really uh, ritualistic form of worship. But I think we should have a, a, a real seriousness and a real focus on God when we come into church. It shouldn't just be light and fluffy. And so he looks back on his time and he, that starts to ground him, right? He, re, he remembers the beautiful uh, reality of, of corporate worship with God's people. Verse five, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What's, what's he doing here? Well, he's talking to himself, right? 
So when he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Well, his soul is, is him. Right? He's looking at himself. He's, and he's talking to himself. And he mentions how he feels here. He's honest, right? He says, I'm cast down. I'm sunk down in my misery. I'm depressed, right? I mean, that's kind of literally what that word means, depressed. Um, that's the state that he's in. He's in turmoil. It's chaos in his heart. So he's honest, but then he commands himself to do something. He commands himself to hope in God. He tells himself what to do. He doesn't simply sit in this state, in a passive state. He begins to command himself. And he reminds himself of what will be true in the future. He'll praise God again. Uh, He's going to be one day out of this exile in this distant place, and he'll be back with God's people, worshiping God together with them. So there's hope. And and he reminds himself of who God is. He says that he's my salvation so he delivers me out of the trial, right? He rescues me from danger, and he's my God. He has a personal relationship with God. It's not just a God. This is my God. I know him, and he knows me. Derek, Derek Kidner points out a really important thing about this. He says, it's an, it's an important dialogue between two aspects of the believer, who is at once a man of convictions and a creature of change. He's called to live in eternity, his mind stayed on God, but also in time where mind and body are under pressures that cannot and should not leave him impassive. So this, this is the, that kind of tension that I was mentioning at the beginning, that we're people of feelings and people of change, but we're also people who have an identity that is fixed in the heavens. We've been secured by God. So how do we be honest about the state we're in? We can't be emotionless or you know passive, impassive about it, but we also need to fix our minds on that eternal truth that grounds us. Um, my favorite, <clears throat> one of my favorite books in the world is the book *Spiritual Depression* by Martin Lloyd Jones. A fantastic book if you haven't read it. But the first, I think it's the first chapter in the book is on, and really the whole idea for the book is from these two Psalms, 42 and 43. And Martin Lloyd Jones, this old preacher who passed away a long time ago. Um, he says this, and this is so helpful. I'm going to quote, it's a long quote, but man, this is life-changing. This is what he says. He says, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow our self to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just t- trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Someone is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment, meaning the man in Psalm 42 and 43, this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have but little experience. I love this, right? Most of our problems in life are due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. Kind of allow these thoughts to hit us and we just believe them and we just let them shape us instead of pointing ourselves to what is true. Have you experienced that? that? Is that familiar for you? Now, you don't always have, you don't always choose your emotional state. Sometimes our emotions are, I mean, they're very hard to explain very often. You don't always choose the thoughts that are on your mind when you first wake up, 
but you can choose to respond to them in a, in a forceful and intentional way to say, no, this, this isn't true. And this is what is true. Uh, he goes on, again, this is, I think, very helpful, so that's why I'm quoting at length, but Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on. He says, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, abrade yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, and on this great note, defy yourself, and defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Wow, this is such helpful advice, right? This is how you should talk to yourself. Talk to yourself like the psalmist does. And he's going to do it again and again, right? So it's not just a one-time thing, but this is pure gold. So are you listening to yourself or are you speaking to yourself? Are you talking to yourself? Are you trying to shape from God's words the thoughts that you have? So we see the first section, the longing for God, and then verses 6 to 11, searching for God, searching for God. So we see verse 6. I, I know uh, verse 6 actually starts at the very end of that section that we quoted in verse 5. So I, I, I realize that it's a weird way of dividing the, the verses here. So I just want to acknowledge that. But the bulk of verse 6 is what we're going to read now. He says, uh, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. So this <clears throat> seems to be where he is currently. So he's referring to Jordan, Hermon, Mount Mizar. So this is this is his current location. So the question is, well, where is this? Jordan, we think, when we hear Jordan, we think Jordan River, <clears throat> which is the lowest, um, the, the, the river with the lowest elevation of any place on earth. So the, the Jordan, it kind of starts north of Galilee and then it goes from the bottom of the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea. So Dead Sea is this, you know, it's it's kind of a dead end for the water. Now, if you go to if you go to uh, Israel today, there they've kind of dammed up the the Sea of Galilee. So Sea of Galilee is not it's a fresh it's fresh water. That might be confusing for us because we see our sea and we think salt water. Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Tiberias, right? Um, these are it's a it's a fresh water um, lake essentially. So for Israel, this is where a good amount of their, of their drinking water comes from. So they've dammed it up. So the Jordan River south of, of uh, you know, most of the Jordan River south of the Sea of Galilee is, is a trickle. It's pretty lame, right? So if you see it, you're going to be very disappointed because you're expecting something flowing. Um, but he's probably referring here to, to the headwaters of the Jordan. So this is way up in the north, um, maybe kind of Lebanon area. So Hermon is that the, the Mount Hermon is the very north of Israel. So that, that that's the highest peak in Israel. Is that Mount Hermon? Uh, Mount Mizar. This is only the only time I'm in Scripture that this mountain is mentioned. So we don't for sure know where this is. But again, all this together seems to reference that he's in the north, just outside of Israel. So so again, he's kind of an exile or something. We're not sure what's going on here, but he's up in this mountain, not in this region, far away from the temple and from the corporate worship of God. That, that's what's important for our passage today, right? He's not with the people of God, worshiping God in his temple. And he's feeling the weight of that. 
Uh, verse seven, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So when he mentions the deep here, this refers, uh, same term that's used of those chaotic waters at the beginning of creation. Genesis 1, 2, right? The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. So that, that word deep is an interesting word, but it refers to this sort of chaotic waters. And then he mixes that metaphor with waterfalls that are pounding against him and with these waves that are crashing over him. And so he, he's expressing this feeling of oppression because of life circumstances, right? That he's, it's this picture of someone who's just overwhelmed by the trials he's facing. And he knows God's in control. So he's, he's feeling like God is doing this to him. Verse eight, he says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So in the midst of these waters, the, the psalmist finds a firm place to stand and stands on the solid rock that is God in the midst of all that chaos. He looks to what is stable, which is the, the steadfast love of the Lord, the chesed of the Lord, um, his covenant faithfulness, that God loves us based upon the promises that he's made to the descendants, right? To, to the ancestors, I should, I should say, of these, these uh, writers of the Psalms. Verse 9, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So this, this verse right here encapsulates sort of the tension of the whole psalm, right? Which is that he's saying, God is my rock. I'm on stable ground. And yet God has forgotten me and I'm confused. So he knows something and yet he feels something very different. So God is his rock, but he feels like he is forgotten. Verse 10, he says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So his enemies are reminding him that his current circumstances don't reflect that God is with him. They don't reflect that God cares about him. Like Job, he feels he's been abandoned by God. And so they're asking in this mocking way, where is your God? Verse 11, he says, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So he repeats the line from verse five, because again, sometimes you need to repeat these truths. Say the same thing to yourself again until you believe it. When circumstances don't seem to reflect that God is with you, people are accusing you or telling you God isn't with you, you need to remind yourself of what is true and remind yourself again and again. You need to speak to yourself like this. So let's look at the last section, the last stanza here, which is going to God, going to God. Verses, this is now Psalm 43, verse one. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. So he wants God to take up his cause and to show that his cause is just, right? To vindicate him. Um, often when you're attacked, you can't defend yourself, right? You can't get yourself out of that circumstance. And so he's looking to God, right? This, we've all, I'm sure we've all experienced situations like this where we feel like we can't do anything. Verse two, he says, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Now notice this, this section here, it closely mirrors chapter 42, verse nine. So very, it's very similar. So again, he's saying, I take refuge in God, but I feel rejected by God. Um, there's a, there's a, a contrast here, a tension here. 
And what more is there to do if God himself has rejected you? So you see, we hear this kind of despair or potential for despair. And then look at how his focus shifts. He begins to go to God, even if now it's just in his imagination. It's just something that he is longing for. He's hoping in being able to go to God and to worship with God's people. Look at verse three. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. So the holy hill of God, as we've seen before, is most likely his temple. In this passage, it seems almost certain it's his temple. And so he prays that God will use his light and his truth to lead him back to the temple, to bring him out of this exile that he's in so that he can go and worship God. And verse four is just so beautiful. It's an amazing verse. It says, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. What else is there for the psalmist than to go back to God? to worship him in his temple, to, to be in his presence once again, because God is his exceeding joy. Just as we've seen early on that only God can satisfy him. He's thirsting for God. He's, he's longing for God. So here at the end, we see the same thing, that God is the only one who can satisfy. He's the only one who can give him joy. And I love how he says, God is my exceeding joy, right? God, God is the one who is his exceeding joy because, you know, it's kind of a, cliche to say that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, right? And of course, there's a lot of truth to that. I understand, of course, the intention of that, even if maybe I wouldn't say it quite that way, but it's not just on this side of the cross that we're about a relationship with God and knowing God and not simply empty ritual. It's also way back in, in these times, right? In the days of David and Solomon. Back then, it was all about knowing God. And so the rituals they did, the sacrifices they made, they weren't just empty rituals. They were to draw the worshiper into the presence of God and to communing with him. And so the psalmist here acknowledges that God is his exceeding joy. Verse 5, it ends this way. It says, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's where the psalm ends with one last repetition, one last refrain of, of th- this, this repeated phrase. He's looking to himself, admitting what he's going through, looking to God, trusting in him, right, hoping in him, and remembering who God is. So how are you talking to yourself? Are, are you looking at the objective truth of who God is? <clears throat> are you reminding yourself of God's character and actions throughout history? When times are, are tough, do you focus on who God is or do you just focus on your circumstances? I think this, this psalm really should lead us to, to Jesus as well, right? Because through Jesus Christ, we have a greater understanding of all of these themes. Um, Jesus shows us in the Gospels where true satisfaction is found. John 4, 13, the famous passage where John is with the woman at the well, um, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he's not just pointing to physical water and saying it's insufficient. He's, he's kind of through this pointing to all of the things of his life that what we have now doesn't satisfy, but Jesus Christ satisfies. He satisfies our deepest desires, which ultimately are to know him, or he satisfies the demands of the law 
on our behalf. He, he sets everything right in the world. Jesus is who we truly need and nothing less. And, and because of Jesus, we don't have to go to any location to be in God's presence. Praise God. And even in that same passage in John 4, he reminds, he tells the woman this, right? That true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Um, these Psalms focus on the temple, but we ourselves are God's temple because God's spirit is living within us. And there's something there's something powerful as well when we go into the presence of God with his people in corporate worship, but we can turn to God at any moment, at any time. So I hope through this psalm, these psalms, you've learned something about how we should talk to ourselves. Be honest about your feelings and your situation, yes, but look beyond that to the eternal truth of who God is and what he's done. 